Live from WNUR News, I'm Catherine Odom. You're listening to the 6 o'clock news on WNUR 89.3 FM, HD1, Evanston, Chicago. It's Monday, April 25th, 2022. Tonight on WNUR News, reflecting on spring quarter mask guidance at Northwestern, keeping up with the new Hulu TV show, The Kardashians, and a conversation with a McCormick senior about competing in the Jeopardy National College Championship. Those stories coming up tonight and on WNUR News at 6. Thanks for tuning in. Northwestern has lifted most masking requirements for spring quarter. Reporter Shafee Flenner spoke with students about their opinion on the change. crowd noise and the hum of the backstage, it might be a little difficult to make out, but that was Chance the Rapper performing at Northwestern's very own Dillo Day in 2014, in front of a packed crowd of Northwestern students, alumni, and the general public. That roar, people arm to arm swaying to the music, and generally large crowds have been sorely missed over the last two years of the COVID-19 pandemic. And as we get closer to Dillo Day 2022, the first time the performance will be held since 2019, Northwestern is starting to loosen their COVID policies to adapt both to national and local changes. But is it the right decision? Well, there are varying opinions from many different sources. My name is Shafi Flenner, and let's explore COVID on campus and what people are thinking. It has now been over two years since COVID-19 was first declared a worldwide pandemic. As we look more towards the future, that moment where the children were sent home and the United States asked for a quarantine period seems more and more like a fixed point, a lens through which to look at life before or after COVID. In that time, the world has had to adapt and evolve severely, going from quarantining to Zoom meetings to in-person masking indoors to now, as of last week, going maskless. The Supreme Court recently blocked an attempt of President Joe Biden's administration to implement a nationwide mask mandate, which prompted airlines to lift similar measures. And all around the country, businesses, schools, libraries, and many industries are starting to lift those same protocols. Still, questions have arisen over whether it might be too early for such pullbacks, especially as schools across the country see an uptick in cases. Although the days of 20% positivity rates from December, January, and February 2022 seem to be in the rearview mirror, some worry that we might be moving too quickly away from masking policies, with numbers still relatively prevalent. It is a nuanced issue, and Northwestern students reflect that in their opinion. Um, I think it's tricky because obviously at some point, like, we will unmask, I guess we kind of have, uh, but like at some point we would anyway. Um. This is sophomore transfer Amelia Montanino expressing an idea that many students here feel. To sum it up, it's complicated. It did feel a little premature for me, at least like in the classrooms, because if we're not testing, um, it just feels like there's no way to know. And for the people who might have underlying conditions or might have family who they like go to visit or I mean there's a number of factors but for people like that um, like classes are the one place you have to go and so I think it's a little bit tricky to um, have that be a place where you don't have to wear masks. I think it makes sense like other places like the library in certain situations um, more because like people are gonna unmask and socialize anyway obviously um, 
but like those are places that you choose to go to um, and they don't necessarily have to do with academics. And the idea of choice in non-academic areas is a popular one. That was reflected by Northwestern closer to the end of winter quarter, where they moved maskless in non-academic settings themselves. However, as recently as that was, there have been many new developments prompting schools further on the East Coast, notably Georgetown University, the University of Pennsylvania, and John Hopkins University, to temporarily reinstate mandates when spikes due to the BA2 variant continue. But most Northwestern students are finding it hard to believe that masking right now will lead to anything but extending the pandemic. Janae Wilson, a current senior living in an off-campus house with several other students, believes that it might be time to move away from masking. It's never going to be like a good enough time, honestly, because um, like I feel like COVID is going to be around for a bit. But while it is true that masking at Northwestern must end at some point, the idea proposed is not to replace it with nothing. Yeah, so last year we had to get tested like every week. Um, and I would, I feel like if the school doesn't want masks, then we should just have like a testing requirement every week. Like it's not like that much work, honestly, but I feel like that would probably be the best plan of action for the school right now, especially because I feel like so many people have COVID or have been getting COVID lately, um, like way more than in the fall. And while the idea of a testing requirement may seem like an immense process to implement, there is already precedent within the student body. Already, because of the maskless policy, many clubs from theater to journalism to dance groups have implemented weekly or bi-weekly tests this quarter because of that lack of mask mandates. Regardless, let's keep crossing our fingers that the spike is temporary and we can finally experience the Dillo Day, an amazing end of the spring quarter that Northwestern always brings. And while testing, to many students, may seem like an annoyance to help keep Northwestern maskless but COVID-free, it might be the only option we have. From Evanston, Illinois, this is Shafi Flunner, WNUR News. Moving on to arts and entertainment. Remember when the Kardashians weren't on television? That was a terrible time. Recently, the family is back with their new reality TV show, The Kardashians. WNUR News' Nick Song took an introspective look into the show. What do the letters K-U-W-T-K mean to you? If you thought it was a radio station call sign or perhaps a Kazakh government agency, you'd be me. The meaning of that acronym, I learned only this weekend, stands for a narrative which transcends Western culture. Within this narrative, there exists a sort of everyman, not as a character within the story itself, but existing on the periphery, reacting to said story. Many of you listening already know the meaning. I'm talking, of course, about keeping up with the Kardashians. Welcome to my family. I'm Kim Kardashian. The princess is in the building. I'm Chloe. Keeping up with the Kardashians debuted on entertainment television in 2007. The formula was simple. Each episode showed the inner lives of the privileged Kardashian-Jenner family members. There'd be some drama, usually between Kim, Chloe, or another one of the sisters, about something that was small enough to be resolved in an hour. There was widespread condemnation. Critics and consumers alike made fun of the show, the family members themselves, and more importantly, the shallow Hollywood lifestyle the Kardashians represented. This is all to say that people watched the hell out of it. Keeping up with the Kardashians became the reality TV show and reshaped the genre. 
The show went on for 20 seasons. That's 14 years. Keeping Up started while Bush was in power and ended a year into the Biden presidency. That's longer than most juntas. Should also be mentioned that the reason the show ended is because the Kardashians wanted it to end. But barely a year after canceling KUWTK, the Kardashians inked a deal to reboot the show. Hulu agreed to pay them nine figures for exclusive airing rights. The title for the new show trimmed all the fat, leaving just the Kardashians. Talk to someone on the street, and chances are they're going to have an opinion on the Kardashians. They'll probably talk about how they represent the culture of celebrity worship, that they're famous for being famous, all those different talking points. I had read reviews online criticizing the new Hulu show for not taking enough risks and relying on the same formula as Keeping Up. I, of course, had never seen Keeping Up, so I really didn't mind it. And having watched the first episode, that's really what I think of the show as a whole. I don't mind it. This past Friday night, I turned on the first episode of The Kardashians. Despite not having billions of dollars in the bodacious body of Kim K, I found myself enjoying the show. Part of it is that I'm from Los Angeles, and there's a certain novelty in seeing your hometown in the eyes of a tourist. Watching the show also took me back to when I was a kid. In the first episode, the family hosts a quote-unquote normal backyard barbecue and eats catered chicken nuggets and mac and cheese from stainless steel serving bowls. Occasionally, I went on elementary school playdates at a certain friend's home in the Hollywood Hills, glimpsing into that stratospheric level of privilege, the open floor plans, the sleek white exterior finishes. My most vivid memory was observing how unperturbed that all seemed by it. The Balenciaga clothing, the luxury mansions, their entire life, Back when I was a kid, I remember feeling uncomfortable when I was at that friend's house. Looking at all the wealth, I felt like I had intruded on some sacred ritual I had no right witnessing. And yet there I was, standing on the tertiary, looking into a foreign world. I was observing unmistakable normalcy. Relative, of course, but normalcy nonetheless. Speaking of normalcy, the show attempts normal situations that you and I might have. I've already mentioned the backyard barbecue. And during that, there's a moment when St. West, Kim and Connie's six-year-old son, is playing Roblox on the iPad. He comes over to Kim with the tablet to show her what he's doing. And Kim realizes there's an inappropriate thing in the game. I have a seven-year-old brother who also plays Roblox, and inevitably I have also been in those awkward situations. It was a cool moment, knowing I could empathize with Kim Kardashian, even over something innocuous as seeing something in an iPad game. Oh, well then we're suing them if it's a game with my name and picture. That is, until the, it's revealed what's on the screen. I looked at it and it said something super inappropriate, like Kim's new sex tape. This is supposed to be unreleased footage from my old sex tape. The last thing that I want as a mom is for my past to be brought up 20 years later, especially when it's this- For the rest of the episode, Kim tries to sue Roblox to remove her sex tape from the game. She's worried that it will distract people from her upcoming appearance hosting Saturday Night Live. So yeah, it's not quite our town, but the Kardashians is still entertaining. 
If you have the password to your sister's Hulu premium account, like I do, I highly recommend checking out the first episode. Episode 2 is already out, and episode 3 comes out on April 28th. So yeah, for WNUR News, I'm Nick Song, and I just reviewed the Kardashians. The princess is in the building! Senior Yijun Kim competed on behalf of Northwestern in the Jeopardy! National College Championship earlier this year. Reporter, reporter Margot Amuyal has the story. Picture this. You are walking across a stage, shining with lights, to compete in the Jeopardy! National College Championship. Well, that was exactly the reality for McCormick Sr., Yejun Kim. Here are tonight's next three college competitors. At Northwestern University, Evanston, Illinois, Yejun Kim. She describes how she felt the second she was first on the stage. It was really stressful. They don't really tell you what time you're going on what day. And they don't tell you who you're playing against until right before. So that was like really petrifying, you know, because I was like, I didn't want to go last. I didn't want to go first. From WNUR News, you're listening to News at Six. Ye Jun was featured in the second half of episode two and competed against Joey Kornman from Brandeis University and Mitch Masick from Villanova University. By the third attempt, Yejun got a question right and a smile covered her face due to the accomplishment. Yejun, what is Ulta? Correct. The element 600. The contestants kept vying for correct answers. Soon, Yejun accumulated nearly $3,000 in earnings. Yejun kept buzzing in and so did the others. As the questions dwindled, Yejun ended up in third place by the final question. The final Jeopardy, where all three contestants get to answer a question and wager as much as they would like up to how much they've earned so far. Welcome back to Final Jeopardy. Anything can happen here. The category 20th century leaders. Here's the clue. At this point, she decided her best bet was to wager $0 on the last question. Why, you may ask? On the surface, one might think had she bet more, she could have seemingly had a stronger shot in coming in second place. Well, it was her best strategy, Yejun said. And I just want to clear the record that it was the best bet in my situation, I'll say. I studied final waging strategy. So my strategy is like, yeah, I could bet everything, but I wasn't confident in the category. And then why would Mitch and I both bet everything? Because I know Mitch is going to bet everything. So yeah. I should just try and go for a second place. And Yejun's guess was mostly right in the technique, highly effective. Mitch did bet everything, as she thought he would, in a final attempt to beat Joey and come in first place. But... Mitch got the question wrong, and his final earnings dwindled to zero. Did you come up with Winston Churchill? I'm afraid not. <laughs> All right, who is Nelson Mandela? Unfortunately, that's not correct. What's that going to cost you? Everything that will take you down to zero puts you in third place. Meanwhile, Yejun, even though she thought she wouldn't get the question right, did. But even without wagering money, she came in second place, since Mitch fell to zero dollars. And even if she had bet everything, she would not have had enough to beat Joey. And Joey Kornman, what did you come up with? Who is Winston Churchill? That is correct. And how much are we going to add to your score? 
$801 with $17,201. Congratulations. You are moving on to the semifinals. Ye Jun has been watching Jeopardy since she was a kid, but stepping on the real stage felt very different. For one, it was extremely fast-paced. I feel like in preparation for it and like in my life, I watched so much Jeopardy, right? Like with my friends and stuff, where you sit on the couch and like you just like say the answers along or like you laugh about like the dumb guesses. And then I was like standing there and I was like, oh, there's no like do-overs, skipping categories I don't like. There's no like laughing off like bad answers, stupid guesses I made with my friends. I was like, oh, like this is like actually like, the whole thing is going to be recorded. And I think that feeling was just really scary. More than 26,000 hopeful students from over 4,000 different colleges auditioned to be on Jeopardy this year, but only 36 students made the final cut and a chance to win the grand prize of $250,000 and jury glory. Ye Jun describes the audition process. I think like the core makes sense, like emails out. I remember like the producers were just like advertising to all the big schools. And I told my roommate it would be fun, so he took it. It was just like a random afternoon. And then I went and made lunch. And I forgot about it. <laughs> a few months later, Yejun and her roommate both received an email that they passed the initial test, and they were asked to participate in the first round of interviews. So that was like in November of 2020, um, which was a really long time ago. And then it was like not until like January of like 2021 that like they sent out emails for like the first round of auditions, which was just the same type of test but proctor. So they're like checking if you're not cheating. And I thought that was cool in itself. And then Ye Jun kept being asked back for more interviews. And then there was a third interview in the last one, which was in March. And that was like not a test. It was like they put you on like a Zoom call with like 10 other kids and then made you play like a mock game. And then they would ask you questions like, oh, like, what are you going to do with the money if you win? Ye Jun said she would spend the money attending the Coachella Valley Music and Arts Festival. After that interview, Ye Jun said she forgot about Jeopardy for a while. That was until she got a bizarre phone call in March. It was like, I was sitting in the backyard with my roommate. We were just like doing homework out there. And it was like an LA area code. And then it was basically like the contestant producer being like, oh, like you're basically concerned. We just need to do like a background check. I guess, like, I was excited, and, like, my roommate was right there with me, and I was just, like, in shock, but then I got really stressed, and then that meant I had to study. <laughs> Ye Jun was not allowed to tell anyone, including her parents or friends, that she got accepted until the competitors were officially announced in February. Then, come February, Ye Jun took a plane to California for the official tournament and filming. Once she arrived, Ye Jun, along with the other competitors, immediately began preparing for the showdown. So, like, we were there for, like, a few days. It was, like, one day where everyone gets there. The next day was, like, promotions, like, taking pictures and, like, filming, like, clips. And then the next two days were the quarterfinal game. Ye Jun dedicated her first few evenings to diligently studying. I felt the need that I could, like, cram. I was like, oh, my God, like, I need to go study. It's been, like, two days. And after Ye Jun filmed the episode and knew she was not progressing to the next round, she went out to dinner with her Jeopardy! contestant peers. And I think that was so much fun. Like, it was really sweet. We all, like, went to, like, this random restaurant. And it was, like, just such a good time. Because, like, everyone had been done at that point. And, like, we all hung out in, like, someone's hotel room. And it was, like, really fun. Ye Jun said, with all this time together, some Jeopardy! friendships turned into romantic relationships. I noticed two people started dating afterwards. Yeah, I thought I didn't even find that out until, like, they said something in, like, a group chat. That group chat? 
it's still very active. Like someone says something like almost every single day. And I think that's been really cool. Just seeing how like people reacted to their episodes, like how they watched it with their friends. Yejun said she made some incredible friends from the experience as well. Yejun said that there are a lot of techniques to Jeopardy, from daily double hunting to learning to press the buzzer really fast. Yejun's tactic of choice, pick questions related to STEM given her engineering background. That way, she'll be most likely to know the answers. The buzzing technique, meanwhile, that's something Yejun said she really struggled with. And I think that's what makes things so different. It's like, it's literally like, just like so much concentration, but it's over so fast in like 30 minutes. That, and then also that the buzzer timing is really hard. People assume that like, if you don't buzz in on something, they're like, oh, you didn't know it. Most of the times it is the case that like all three people knew it, but just like one person was just like, what, like a millisecond faster. But according to Yejun, a part of Jeopardy is also just chance. It's such a game of chance, and I feel like people don't really realize that. It's a chance what categories show up. It's a chance, like, if you find a daily double or not. It's a chance, you know, the final Jeopardy. It's just, like, very, like, randomized. Yejun said one of the craziest aspects of participating in Jeopardy, in addition to being interviewed by many news outlets, was being featured on the official Northwestern Instagram. Oh, my God, crazy. Northwestern put me on their Instagram. That was, like, the biggest... <laughs> I think that was the biggest point. They followed me. I think that was like my biggest celebrity moment. <laughs> Yejun also said a lot of people from her hometown of Naperville, Illinois, have reached out to her about the competition. I think the best part was that a lot of like my old friends and like teachers reached out on social media. I thought that was really sweet. My elementary school teachers, people I haven't like talked to in a while. Just like congratulations. Oh, like this is so cool. But it was like nice to like reconnect with them. After the tournament ended, Yejun said she had a viewing party with her college friends. And one of the craziest things, Yejun tried competitive quiz bowl in high school, and it wasn't for her. I, like, actively remember I thought trivia would be cool freshman year when I was, like, a naive, like, what, 14-year-old. Then I joined it for one semester, and then I quit <laughs> because it was too stressful. <laughs> it stressed me out, like, the whole, like, buzzing it part, which I just find very ironic. I wonder how the teacher for that would react because I think he retired. I go to Bob's. Like once a month. <laughs> that counts. My team has never gotten like more than like 10 plays. So where is Yejun headed next? How does she intend to spend the $10,000 she earned for competing? Well, for one, probably not on Coachella. She said the earnings are going towards paying for her Northwestern education. As for her future career, she has some ambitious goals. Yejun plans to go to graduate school, where she hopes to concentrate on biological engineering and cell research. From WNUR News, I'm Margot Mewall. Interested in watching College Jeopardy? Well, that's great, because you can watch it for free on the ABC website. After a week of drama, it's time for the B-List, WNUR News' roundup of pop culture highlights from the previous week. Here's Allison Rauch with more. Welcome to the B-List, your weekly roundup of celebrity mess and pop culture. This week, NBA playoffs, celebrity arrests, and an update on Twitter's fate. First up in celebrity news, many stars are swimming in legal trouble. Rapper ASAP Rocky was arrested Wednesday at LAX in connection with the shooting last November. He was released three hours later on bail and has a court date set for August 17th. Actor Ezra Miller was also arrested Wednesday in Hawaii for a second time. They were charged with second-degree assault after throwing a chair at a woman. 
Miller was released several hours after the arrest, but the investigation remains active. The Johnny Depp and Amber Heard defamation trial continues today. For the uninitiated, Depp is suing Heard for $50 million over a 2018 op-ed in which she claimed to be a, quote, public figure representing domestic abuse, end quote. Both Heard and Depp have accused each other of physical violence in their relationship. And Rolling Stone released never-before-seen footage yesterday. It shows rapper DeBaby's 2018 shooting of teenager Jalen Craig in a Walmart. DeBaby, real name Jonathan Kirk, had previously claimed he acted in self-defense. But the footage shows Kirk appearing to instigate the attack. Kirk was originally not charged due to reasonable doubt. In tech, Elon Musk bought Twitter today to the tune of about $44 billion. Twitter's shares were up about 6% following the news. In sports, NBA playoffs continue. Some shocks in the West, the one-seed Arizona Suns, are tied up at 2-2 with the New Orleans Pelicans. The Memphis Grizzlies and Minnesota Timberwolves are also at 2-2. And despite a close loss last night to the Denver Nuggets, the Golden State Warriors are looking to do well as the series continues. In the East, the Miami Heat are up 3-1 against the Atlanta Hawks, and the Boston Celtics are looking to sweep the Brooklyn Nets at 3-0. They play tonight at 6 p.m. CST. The Toronto Raptors and Philadelphia 76ers play at 7, and the Utah Jazz and Dallas Mavericks at 8.30. That's all for the B-List this week. Check in next Monday to hear about what happens this week in pop culture. For WNUR News, I'm Allison Rauch. A look at the weather for tonight. Expect the temperature to remain in the mid to low 40s for the rest of the night. Tomorrow, we'll see slightly cloudy skies with a high of 51 and a low of 45. Taking a look at the headlines, more than 70 students gathered on Saturday at The Rock for a vigil honoring Palestinian lives lost to recent attacks by Israeli forces during Ramadan. A Chicago Police Department SWAT team responded to an active intruder threat made over the phone at Northwestern Memorial Hospital last night. After a sweep of the building, CPD gave the all clear. Elon Musk and Twitter reached a deal for the sale of the social media platform today. Musk will take over Twitter for about $44 million, or $54.20 per share. Today, the Biden administration announced it will send diplomats back to Ukraine and work to reopen the embassy in Kyiv in the coming weeks. American diplomats left Ukraine during the Russian attack on Kyiv, but Secretary of State Anthony Blinken said American diplomats will return by next week. That's all for WNUR News at 6 p.m. For more news and updates, follow us on Twitter at WNUR News. You can listen to these and other stories of the day on our website, WNUR.News. That's WNUR.News. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Our producer today is Madison Bratley. Our reporters are Shafi Flenner, Margot Amoyal, Nick Song, and Allison Rauch. From all of us here at WNUR News, I'm Catherine Odom. Thanks for listening, and catch our next cast on Wednesday, April 27th at 6 p.m. Now, back to regularly scheduled programs.